0: give. Thanks for listening, and God bless.
1: Good morning, friends. Our scripture comes from Titus chapter 2 of the Common English Bible. But you should talk in a way that is consistent with sound teaching. Tell the older men to be sober, dignified, sensible, and healthy in respect to their faith, love, and patience. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good, rather than being gossips or addicted to heavy drinking. That way, they can mentor young women to love their husbands and children and to be sensible, morally pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that God's word won't be ridiculed. Likewise, encourage the younger men to be sensible in every way, Offer yourself as a role model of good actions. Show integrity, seriousness, and a sound of message that is above criticism when you teach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because they won't find anything bad to say about us. Tell slaves to submit to their own masters and please them in everything they do. They shouldn't talk back or steal. Instead, they should show that they are completely reliable in everything so that they might make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives right now by rejecting ungodly lives and and the desires of this world. At the same time, we wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us in order to rescue us from every kind of lawless behavior and cleanse a special people for himself who are eager to do good actions. Talk about these things. Encourage and correct with complete authority. Don't let anyone disrespect you. May God bless our understanding of this scripture. Due to technical difficulties, we are starting just a few moments into the sermon.
0: Break dance skating which never ended up very well. Um, and then there would always be, at some point, uh, the time when the DJ would like stop the music and tell everyone to come to the center of the room and get into a circle. And we get into a circle, did this happen for right, you guys? Okay, so some of you guys. And, and the song would come on, and the song would go, you put your right foot in, you put your right foot out, you put your right foot in, and you shake it all about, you do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around, that's what it's all about, right? And you'd be balancing on your skate, you know, a little wobbly, putting your foot in and out, and shaking it all about, and having a good time with everyone else. And the hokey pokey is just this fun song, right, that everyone gets to do silly things together for a good time. And it works if you're all doing it, right? If it's just one person, it doesn't really work. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that's how society and culture is set up, right? We have these rules that are spoken and unspoken that tell us how to get by and how to get along. And if you're a student who moves to Hyde Park to attend college or one of the many seminaries in the neighborhood, you're likely to get a very specific set of instructions at your orientation. And these instructions will go something like this. One should avoid traveling on foot west of Cottage Grove, you put your right foot in, north of 47th Street, you put your right foot out. And when I was in school south of the Midway, uh, that boundary was probably pushed back to 61st or 63rd Street. So you put your right foot in and you shake it all down. And so this is kind of complicated, right? Because on one hand, These are roughly the areas that are bound by the University of Chicago Police Patrol, and because of this, they probably feel safer for certain people in certain demographics. But of course, when you tell people things like this, right, you're kind of low-key telling them that some places are okay and some places are not okay. And if you're feeling a little snarky about this, I'll share that just this last week, when I was setting up up a one-on-one with someone, I asked Drew where was a good place for us to meet since he lived in the area that we were gonna be meeting. And his response was, Well, there's a Burger King if you want lunch, (laughs) but the Starbucks is probably safer. And Drew's got mad love for his area, right? But he's trying to help me and everyone else make good decisions that will help keep us safe. So guidelines and boundaries are not necessarily bad. They can give us an orientation to one another and kind of create a container to live in, right? You do the dishes, I'll take out the garbage. And so in our passage for today, we've got this letter from the Apostle Paul to this guy named Titus, who is the organizing pastor of a new faith community on the island of Crete, which is not far from Greece. And scholars think that Paul, when he's writing this, that Paul has some PTSD from a bunch of kind of drama that went down in the church in Ephesus with people acting super wet and basically hijacking the church. And Paul realized, maybe I should be more specific about how we're supposed to be doing what we're doing. And in some ways, this feels like the same kind of logic that got us all taking off our shoes at the airport, but anyway. <laughs> so, because of this situation in Ephes- Eph- Ephesus, these scholars think that Paul is trying to be real clear and very specific about what it looks like to be God's people as a community and in the day-to-day. So, you tell uh, the older men to be sober, dignified, sensible, and healthy. You put your are right, mm-hmm. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good. Put your right foot out. Show integrity, seriousness, and a sound message that is above criticism when you teach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because they won't be able to find anything bad to say about us. That's what it's all about. (laughs) And I get it. You get it, right? Paul wants to make sure this community reflects all the best of what the gospel can be. Okay, that's cool. But... I'm going to put my pointer finger on Paul's shoulder and just kind of like give a little hold on there, Baru, Because I'm a little like, yeah, I'm not really feeling your low-key politics of respectability wrapped in an elbow-patched cardigan of faith, right? Yeah. Not just because he's buying into existing oppressive structures of household hierarchy as dictated by Greco-Roman culture. I can forgive him for trying to make the best out of a not-awesome situation, even though Jesus, I think, basically was like, burn it down, right? So, I mean, I can forgive Paul, or at least empathize with him. The dude was tired. He was basically living out of a suitcase and was constantly being run out of town by folks who were throwing stones at him. So he's like, let's just try to make this thing work, right? But it's hard not to feel some kind of way about this passage, right? Especially in light of how these kinds of texts have been used and abused for the sake of upbuilding and upholding some pretty ugly stuff in our country, which is what we're talking about today in our sermon series, Getting Information, right? The history of race and racism in the United States. So, because this was not a semester long class, I'm gonna focus on two elements in our country's history of race in light of this scripture passage for today. And I will state up front that my sources include things like uh, the Analyzing Systemic Racism training led by Crossroads Anti Racism. Uh, the Book of People's History of the United States, uh, curriculum that was provided by the Presbyterian Church USA, as well as countless articles, conversations, and uh, presentations that I've been able to be a part of. So, um, the first element that I'm going to focus on is economics. money. In the race to dominate and exploit people, land, and resources, European governments poured money into exploration um, excursions, which was, brought our good old, which was what brought our good old friends, the and the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, to the shores of North America. Spain was looking for gold, and all they found were a bunch of puka shells. But, essentially, this discovery, remember our conversation about columbus last fall? Um, you know, check the podcast. Uh, this, this discovery opened the floodgates for a European land grab because, you know, no one was living on it.
1: Uh, <laughs> thus,
0: the first casualties of greed, indigenous persons who are often referred to as American Indians, who, by the way, are the most legislated people group in the country because we kept drawing and redrawing lines and making promises that we did not intend to keep. And I say we because whether we like it or not, we benefit from that legis- legislation. I digress. Then, when there were not enough hands to, do the, to work the land because those darn indentured servants Kept exercising their right to get out of their contracts after seven years, colonists decided to find some free labor, right? Labor that couldn't get away. Labor that were so dramatically different in look and culture and custom that we could convince ourselves that they were not just less important, but they were less human. And this brings me to the second element whiteness. Now, You all know that I don't watch the sports unless one of my Emerald City teams are in some kind of championship But there's nothing I do know. When you are watching a game, there is one easy way to tell your teams apart. Can you tell me what that is?
2: color.
0: That's right, the colors, the uniforms. I know things. Um, But it's not a neutral situation, right? The uniforms not only help you tell the teams apart, they also help you know who you're rooting for. So for example, if it's a blue and orange team, playing a blue and green team, I will be having arguments with Lena about how much I don't care about football, but the Seahawks are better. Because I don't really care about football, but I do care about Seattle. Did I mention that I don't care about football? Uh, Well, you know, the history of whiteness is kind of like a peculiar history of determining what constitutes the uniform that is less about the uniform and more about what the uniform gets for the team. Or another way to put it is that it's less about fixed categories and more about a shared self-interest in preserving and building power and access to resources, a.k.a. economics and privilege, for some folks over others. Here's a great video that is going to be shown um, that gives a really quick but excellent overview of how that has worked out in the United States.
2: The fact is, even though race drives a lot of social and political outcomes, race isn't real. One of the first people to attempt to categorize humans according to race was a German scientist around 1776. He came up with five different groups according to physical appearance and geographic origin of their ancestors. Americans of European descent eagerly bought into this type of thinking around the same time. Some historians have said the idea that there were different races helped them resolve the contradiction between a natural right to freedom and the fact of slavery. If whites were their own distinct category, then they could feel a lot better about denying freedom to people who they labeled black and decided were fundamentally different. But as political priorities change, definitions of race in America adjust right along with them. For example, If you were of Mexican birth or ancestry in the United States in 1929, you were considered white. Then, the 1930 census changed that to non-white to limit immigration. Later, when the U.S. needed to increase its labor force during World War II, these people were switched back to white. And what it meant to be black, once varied so wildly throughout the country, from one quarter to one-sixteenth to the infamous one drop of African ancestry, that people could actually change races just by crossing state lines. Then, suddenly, in 2000, the government decided that Americans could be more than one race and added a multiracial category to the census. This has left many Americans scratching their heads when it comes to selecting who they are. As many as 6.2% of census respondents selected some other race in a 2010 survey. The idea that someone might look one way and identify another way, or that they might be really hard to place in a racial category is not new. This is why there was a public debate about whether MSNBC's Karen Finney could say she was black, or how we can't even agree on a racial label assigned to the President of the United States. Of course, many people feel their racial identity is very clear and very permanent, but the fact that some people have changed theirs and that no one can really argue with them shows how shaky the very idea of race is. This is all because there isn't a race chromosome in our DNA that people can point to, it simply doesn't exist. When the medical community links race to health outcomes, it's really just using race as a substitute for other factors, such as where your ancestors came from, or the experiences of people who may have been put in the same racial group as you. Dorothy Roberts explains that sickle cell anemia is a prime example of this. The disease is linked to areas with high rates of malaria, which include some parts of Europe and Asia, in addition to Africa. It's not actually about race at all. This, of course, does not mean that the concept of race isn't hugely important in our lives. The racial categories to which we're assigned can determine real-life experiences, they can drive political outcomes, and they can even make the difference between life and death. But understanding that racial categories are made up can give us an important perspective on where racism came from in the first place.
0: So racial categories have shifted based on things like economy and jobs, war and immigration, but almost always, this is happening in the space of a spectrum, right? Where one side is white, and the other side is black. And it is messing us up. You've got Mexicans who went from being Mexican to being white to being Mexican to being Hispanic. And the census that gives folks the option of either being white Hispanic or non-white Hispanic. Okay. And in 1919, you've got Bhagat Singh Tind, an Indian Sikh man arguing that as a high caste Indian of full Indian blood, he should be able to become a citizen because the law states that three white persons were eligible for citizenship. As a full-blooded Indian, he argued, he was literally Caucasian, and he used the science of the data to prove it, the same science that kind of caused all this faux-race mess in the first place, right? He uses a whole bunch of racist and classist arguments that would probably make you feel very unkindly toward him. But so he makes this argument up and down the courts. The courts can't make a decision. They keep, like, overturning each other's... um, Decisions where the final ruling uh, with the Supreme Court basically said in this case, when we use the term Caucasian, we're actually talking about the common understanding, not the scientific understanding as you have argued. AKA, you know what we mean, and you ain't white. Mm -hmm. And maybe this all feels very complicated and removed to what we think about here in Chicago when we think (coughs) and talk about race, right? But it's very important for you to know this and to think about this because policy shapes people and power shapes policy. And policy tells you and shapes you to know when it's okay to put your right foot in and who can put their right foot out and the faulty logic of why we all have to shake it all about, right, because economics and whiteness, that's what it's all about. And I could go on and talk about the model minority myth and mass incarceration and anti-immigration legislation and the pervasive use of Native American headdresses and urban outfitter ads, But then we'd be here a few more hours, and you probably wouldn't come back next week, right? So I'm going to keep it moving. We live in this container. This container shaped by a history of building and preserving economic power for white folks, and a complicated history of who does and doesn't get to be considered white. And all of it rests on the ideology of anti-black racism. There is this blogger, his name is Scott Nakagawa, excellent writer, and he puts it this way, anti-black racism is the fulcrum of white supremacy. And I know that's a lot of uh, syllables, so here's a picture. A fulcrum is the point on which a lever rests, or is supported, and on which it pivots. The lever is white supremacy, and I'm not talking about white people, or even white supremacy groups, but instead, the insidious and pervasive preference and conference of power and authority by institutions, Governments, organizations, and individuals to people who are deemed white by those same institutions. So, it doesn't matter if you protest and say, but I'm Polish. In the eyes of the institution, you're white. Okay, Whiter than my leaf sheets drying on a clothesline in the sun. Just kidding, I don't dry my clothes on a clothesline. (laughs) Um, White supremacy is not bricks through windows, but a function, a way of doing in society. And white supremacy relies on the fulcrum of anti-black racism to move white people and people in the racial middle, people uh, uh, who are even um, who are even African American, toward the end of preserving the hierarchy. Right. So everyone uh, somehow ends up participating in this. The container we live in, which has been constructed by economic greed and racial superiority, and you're probably. Just gonna need to re-listen to all of this on the podcast because I know I'm throwing a lot of heavy right now. So we live in this container of white supremacy where we have these norms and expectations and even roles that have helped, uh, that have developed in society. And Paul's words, I remember the scripture passage, um, despite his best efforts have been used yet again in spite of his best efforts to hijack the church in service of whackness, right? Because of course it's passages like this that have been employed to justify racism Sexism, classism, and probably also kicking puppies. I kind of think that for a guy, right? He just can't win for losing. And Paul, who was obviously not at a point where he wanted to negotiate the household structure. Maybe that's because he was too entrenched in his own privilege as a well educated, cisgendered male Roman citizen. So then, what are we to do with passages like these, right? We just kind of like throw them out and be like, well, that was then, and this is now. Well, In spite of all the shady ways that the Bible came together, let's try and give consideration of the efforts, questionable deals, and faithful fistfights that were had over the collection and preservation of Scripture. Because here, at the end of the passage, this last chunk is where we see the underlying theology, the whole point of Paul's instructions. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives now. We wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us in order to rescue us from every kind of lawless behavior and cleanse special people for himself who are eager to do good actions. Talk about these things. Encourage and correct with complete authority. Don't let anyone disrespect you. And this is where we place our focus. Because in spite of Paul's own stuff, this is ultimately what he's trying to say. Live your faith in body, mind, and spirit. Be eager to do good actions. You put your rights in in. First, embody the values of your faith. Being eager to do good actions means getting in formation and becoming an activist for love and for the things that bring us closer to God's vision of salvation, aka wholeness of life for all. Things like justice, and power sharing, and privilege distribution actively dismantling and replacing harmful structures that have done violence to our country and to our souls. For some, then, it would be enough that you're doing the work, right? That you're embodying it. You, can, you can't legislate hearts and minds, but you can legislate bodies, right? But for Christians, more is required. It's not, it doesn't just stop with embodiment. You have to keep growing and learning. So then, uh, you, have, so then you have to talk about these things, right? You put your right foot out. In other words, you have to get education or information in order to get information. (laughs) And that means continually opening yourself up to new relationships, new experiences, and new ways of understanding old truths. So I mentioned earlier that um, a couple of weeks ago we had a post-worship conversation about power and privilege. And Brandy shared about how um, she had been taught that she needed to to work twice as hard to be seen just as good. That's what her parents had taught her. And it was really interesting in the course of the conversation, because I realized that I had actually really been taught that I just needed to be so good, it didn't matter. Right? It made me realize, though, as I was kind of reflecting on that exchange, that racism has formed and deformed not only our individual identities, but also the shape of how our parents were forming us. Right? Equip, how also how like our parents were trying to equip us with the things that we needed in order to succeed. <coughs> Getting information means continuing to grow and learn, to open ourselves to other people's experiences and expand our sense and understanding of things, right? And finally, don't let anyone disrespect you, right? In the meantime, in between time, don't let anyone disrespect you. In other words, in Tupac's verbs, keep your head up and let your head down. Right? Because this is really hard work, and it's a really hard world that we live in. You may get to a place, right, where you finally have, like, got your stuff together, you arrived in a good place, and then someone says something that just punches you in the gut. Something happens that completely blindsides you. The depression you crawled out of comes to drag you back in. Because no matter how hard you push, how hard you struggle, the needle just doesn't seem to move. So then, what do we do with that? How do we negotiate that, right? Well, you know, the way that Paul talks about it, and I think the way that Jesus talks about it too, is that we gather together in community for small groups and sermons and songs. We read scripture and tell testimony and pray together and remember that God is with us. And we speak life to each other, right? Reminding one another that I slept, you slept, And that together we play, right? (laughs) All the way, because we're God's play, And we don't play, (laughs) because there's too much to do, too much to be today. We are God's people, bound together by hope, ready to get information and ready to get information. And the only danger to us is our fear our apathy, and our lack of trust in God's imagination. So we cultivate hope. Body, mind, spirit, applied and bound together by hope. An illogical, unimaginable, laughable hope that says, in spite of the increase of public hate speech and fear-mongering and willful hatred, in spite of your crushing sense of hopelessness, powerlessness, and cynicism that you're cultivating to protect your breaking heart, Here in this passage, in spite of all the stuff bucking up the message, here we're reminded that we have a hope that helps us rise above the mess, an assurance that we can get through it together. We are here, bound together by hope, rescued already from the things we fear, and ready to receive information, ready to get information so that we can change our situation. Because that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Uh, these are big things things beyond us things that have gone before us and will continue on after us and it's hard not to feel overwhelmed